The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. If the pilgrims were sojourners, their, their promised land must have been the future United States. But that, of course, was not the way they were thinking at all. Their promised land was the higher country, uh, the heavenly city. Since we are about to observe Thanksgiving, who were the pilgrims and what did they really believe? Welcome to First Person, I'm Wayne Shepherd, and we're about to hear the answer to that question from our guest, Dr. Tracy McKenzie. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and welcome. While it is a uniquely American holiday, Thanksgiving is a biblical principle that we should give thanks to God in all things. But this has been a particularly difficult year for many people who are still affected in many ways by the coronavirus. So hopefully, we will all be able to encourage each other and remind one another of God's blessings regardless of the circumstances. Well, thanks for listening. We're going back in history on First Person Now to learn something of the real story of the pilgrims. Our guest, Dr. Tracy McKenzie, holds the position of the Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning at Wheaton College in Illinois. He previously was a guest several years ago to talk about his book, The First Thanksgiving, and we'll place a link to that earlier conversation at firstpersoninterview.com. But in this conversation, I asked Tracy to talk about the early pilgrims and their beliefs. So, Wayne, the pilgrims were a subset of English Puritans. Uh, The Puritans believed that the Church of England, the Anglican Church, uh, was still um, corrupted in some way by elements of Catholic belief and practice. And so they were trying to purify the Church of those elements. Uh, The Pilgrims were uh, a subset known as Separatists. You might think of them as the most radical of the Puritans. And they'd come to the conclusion that the Church of England was really beyond reform and that it was necessary to separate themselves from that church. When they began to do that, they actually made themselves um, uh, criminals uh, in the eyes of the English government uh, and began to receive some degree of persecution. And that prompted then a two-stage migration, first from England to Holland, which took place around 1608, uh, and then from Holland to uh, the English colonies of North America in 1620. Uh, one of the things that's just important to remember is the reason they leave England is different from the reason that they come to North America. So they leave England definitely uh, fleeing religious persecution. But in Holland, they actually experienced uh, what the pilgrims described as uh, a really wonderful degree of religious freedom. Uh, and so the the reasons that they're really impelled to come to North America are other than primarily a search for religious liberty. Uh, they're looking for more economic opportunity. Uh, They're looking for an environment in which they can raise their children according to uh, English uh, cultural habits. Uh, They're uh, fearful even of the possibility perhaps of war breaking out again in Europe, uh, in uh, the Netherlands, and um, uh, they think it's a good time to relocate. So that brings them to North America uh, and to present-day Massachusetts in very late uh, 1620. Now, that's interesting. Most of us would uh, answer the quiz, uh, why did the pilgrims come to North America? They came to uh, enjoy religious freedom. You contend that's not really the primary reason. Yeah, it's not the primary reason. And I have to be very careful on how I express that, because the pilgrims definitely valued 
the uh, liberty to worship God as they believed the Scripture uh, told them to. That was a high priority. It's just that when we say that that's why they came, it sort of implies that they weren't already enjoying that. And if the only uh, issue uh, for them was religious liberty, they never would have left Holland. Uh, And so I think we have to complicate the story. It is really other things that propel them. William Bradford, who is the longtime governor of the Plymouth Colony and who writes a long history of that colony, uh, he talks about the really just the difficulty in earning a living. Uh, most of the, the pilgrims in Leiden are working as textile uh, workers, uh, what we today would call piecework. They're getting paid just a pittance uh, to work from, you know, from dawn to, to dusk. Uh, Bradford says they're growing old early. He says that the aged people are uh, really sort of bowing down under the weight of um, uh, the onerous work that they have to do. Uh, and so he's really emphasizing other things than what we emphasize. Hmm. And I just always think we need to tell the pilgrim story in a way that they yeah. would have recognized uh, and wanted to tell it themselves. Yeah, I appreciate that. I want to pick up on several things you've mentioned. One was that they were concerned about wars in Europe. I was just reading Malcolm Gladwell, who cites the fact that at that time in Europe, there were just so many different wars and countries against each other that it was a, it was a time that we really don't think much about. That's true, and in particular with regard to Holland, Holland had been at war with Spain in a very bloody and long war that had arrived at a kind of uh, temporary um, truce or ceasefire, so to speak, and uh, the agreement that had been arrived at was uh, was scheduled to expire uh, mm-hmm. around 1620. So mm-hmm. no one knows for sure what's going to happen, but a lot of the pilgrims have to be open to the possibility that they're going to be in the middle of a resumption war. Sure. And then the second thing I want to pick up on is when I read your account of what the conditions were like in Holland, the religious liberty they enjoyed there, but the hardship that they enjoyed from a cultural perspective. I thought that was an interesting parallel to what we face now. Many, many people feel like, you know, the culture is not very friendly towards uh, believers these days. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's certainly one of the things that the pilgrim riders are mentioning. They, they think of um, Dutch culture uh, as permissive compared to their their values. They particularly comment on the way that Dutch parents raise their children. They think they indulge them. Uh, it's clear, if you read between the lines, that the pilgrims um, had been criticized by their Dutch neighbors for being too strict uh, with their kids. Uh, a few of their children uh, seem to be w- walking away from the faith, uh, and that also troubles them greatly, and they wonder if that's partly the influence of the surrounding culture. So they do feel that the culture is hostile, uh, and uh, that perhaps re- relocating to an area where they can you know, forge their own communities uh, is the way to respond to that. Well, in our previous conversation, which I will provide a link for in our program notes, by the way, which took place several years ago, we talked about the myths of Thanksgiving. You know, we we uh, attribute uh, our traditions to the pilgrims, right or wrong, and uh, we, we dispelled some of those myths in that conversation. So we're not going to go in that direction today. But what I do want to talk about is what we do know about the pilgrims and what they teach us, what, what we should be taking as a lesson from their life. I'm so glad you asked that question, because I really think that's the, the, by far the more important one. And one of the reasons I comment on some of the things that we misunderstand about the pilgrims is I think it tends to obscure some of the very real lessons that they might teach us. Uh, so when I think about the pilgrims, one of the things I think we get when we study them closely is they help us to see some of the things in our own world that we have just become so used to that we take it for granted and don't even really uh, uh, show any awareness of it anymore. 
And so there's just a few of those I can give you as yeah, an example. Yeah, please, examples. Yeah, one of the things that impresses me uh, about the Pilgrims uh, is the way that they make me aware of the individualism that is absolutely central uh, to American culture in the 21st century. The, the Pilgrims bring to um, the world a totally different uh, understanding. Uh, they think of society as composed of groups, not of individuals. And they would have thought that there's three main groups that everyone, uh, in theory, uh, is going to be connected to. They call them estates. One estate is the family. One estate is the church. One estate is the civil society, the community that is defined by uh, the civil government. And individuals' identity and, and, uh, and experience, lived experience, uh, is all in the context of those groups. So that when uh, the Pilgrims set down the first uh, legal code for Plymouth in 1627, one of the things they actually prohibited was for uh, single males to live alone. And so if you migrated to, uh, to Plymouth, they would literally assign you to live with a certain family because they thought that that was not in the interest of the individual or the community. Uh, the isolated individuals, it was just not a, a, a basis of a healthy uh, society. So they're... they're uh, they expose our own individualism. There's no yes. doubt about okay. that. Okay. One of the things I think they also do is I, I really think they show our uh, attachment to the world. Uh, when I first began to read uh, a lot of the Pilgrim documents, one of the things that impressed me so much was how much they talked about heaven. Uh, I have a colleague here at Wheaton College who says that next to hell, heaven is the last place that we really want to go. <laughs> Uh, and, and it may be that in our culture today, with all of the kinds of comforts that we have, with the prolonged life uh, expectancy that we enjoy, uh, that we really sort of push the idea of what comes after death uh, to the uh, peripheries of, of our thinking. Uh, but, of course, the pilgrims live in a, in a time uh, when life expect, expectancy is short, when the incidence of disease uh, is a constant threat. Where starvation, I mean, they, they struggle with the very real threat of starvation for the first three years, at least, uh, that they're in Plymouth. Uh, and so it, it really is, I think, natural for them to think in terms of their heavenly hope. Uh, and um, when I read the Pilgrim documents, I am impressed by how little that is a part of, at least speaking for myself, part of my own uh, consciousness. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that I think this is illustrated, which we utterly lose sight of, is the term that they use to describe themselves. Okay. Which is pilgrim, right? And we, we use that term so much that we don't even think yeah, about what it means. Yeah, it's lost its meaning. Just, yeah, no yeah, question. It's just these folks that wore funny, you know, pointed hats right, and, yeah. and so forth. In the elementary uh, school play, yes. Uh-huh. And, yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, but, but they meant that literally. The pilgrim was the sojourner. The pilgrim, like um, in the um, uh, 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, it's the person who knows that there is uh, another country uh, that they are setting their eyes on that is their ultimate destination. So I think we think of, if the pilgrims were sojourners, their, their promised land must have been the future United States. But that, of course, was not the way they were thinking at all. Uh, their, um, their promised land was um, the higher country, uh, the heavenly city, uh, and um, they were simply uh, seeking a place where they could live faithfully, uh, but with that as their uh, permanent destination. And, and I think that that matters in how we remember uh, the pilgrims, because so often we, we say uh, that the pilgrims were sort of honorary founders of America, or they were part of a group we might call founding fathers 
that many respects we find the origins of our country in some of their actions and beliefs. And in a certain sense, that is true. In a certain sense, it totally misrepresents how they understood themselves what they were doing. Uh, their identity was not as American. Their identity was not primarily as English. They had turned their back on England. Their identity was as uh, followers of Jesus uh, waiting for uh, reunion uh, with him. And, um, and I think that's a, just a totally different way of understanding that term of, of pilgrim. We'll continue to learn about the early pilgrims and their contribution to American life with Dr. Trace McKenzie in just a moment. I'm so grateful for the grace I received while listening to FBBC all day long. I cried listening to God's message multiple times. The Far East Broadcasting Company receives millions of responses each year from grateful listeners. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org. The Far East Broadcasting Company, until all have heard. My guest is Dr. Tracy McKenzie, who is the Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning at Wheaton College in the History Department there. And again, the conversation we had a few years ago about Thanksgiving is in our archive. We'll put a link in our program notes to that first conversation. But this one goes much deeper. This is much more interesting to me, Tracy, to talk about what the pilgrim, who the pilgrims were and what they have to offer to us in our day and age. Going back to the thought that they weren't uh, escaping persecution, per se, uh, when they left Holland, but... Uh, you say that this this reminds you of the parable of the sower, and mm-hmm. because you you equate the uh, the the persecution persecution with the scorching sun, and they were not escaping the scorching sun, but they were concerned about strangling thorns. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting way to put it, and uh, it does remind you of the parable of the sower. Uh, well, it does. So, if you uh, and your listeners remember that uh, story, that parable of Jesus, that is. Uh, given in uh, Mark chapter 4, um, uh, Jesus tells the, the idea that the sower plants a seed in different places. One of the places he plants seed is uh, along the, the rocky uh, path where the, the seed sprouts very quickly, uh, but then uh, uh, is killed by the, by the sun. And uh, Jesus likens that to the person uh, who in time of tribulation or persecution falls away. But then some of the seed falls among thorns, and uh, there it is simply sort of strangled out and does not bear fruit. And Jesus says that the thorns here are a kind of symbol for uh, the cares of this world or concerns about material things. Uh, and I actually think of that very much when I think of the pilgrims' um, motives for, for migrating, because we always tell the story that the pilgrims were fleeing religious persecution and they came to America, uh, when by their own account that wasn't true, what we hear instead is Bradford saying, you know, we really were struggling uh, to make ends meet. We were concerned about how we would support ourselves in our old age. We were worried about the influence of the culture on our families. Uh, we had an- anxious uh, concerns about how our children were uh, being affected. And I think that's a totally different way of thinking about the Pilgrim's motives. And, and one of the reasons I totally think it's important I think that those are motives that most of us can relate to more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we tend to think of religious persecution, for the most part, uh, as something that uh, individuals perhaps in other lands may deal with right now. 
But I think all of us can relate to these sorts of mundane concerns that Jesus was saying can, can strangle our fruitfulness. Uh, and it absolutely, I think, is the better way to tell the pilgrim story. I think it's truer to what they themselves said. Right. Uh, if, if a pilgrim were magically transported to our day, of course, there would, there would be much shock over all the technology and everything <laughs> we have. I mean, they wouldn't begin to comprehend that. But on a spiritual level, what would they think of us today? Oh, boy, that's a good, um, that's a good thought. Uh, yeah, uh, of course, I, I hope I don't misrepresent them. I can't say for sure. But one of the things that, that strikes me very much about the pilgrims uh, is how robust their understanding of the church is. Mm. Uh, and this goes to some of what we've already said about our individualism versus their thinking of the group. One of the reasons that they ultimately do leave uh, Holland for America is because of how the hardness of the place, as Bradford put it, is hurting the church. And it's hurting the church because individuals are finding it so difficult to make a living that they're having to leave uh, Holland and return to, to England. So one of the things that we could miss about their migration is that it's a collective migration. It's a congregation that says, we are very much concerned but we're not going to respond to these challenges as isolated, separate individuals. We're going to say, how can our specific body or part of the body of Christ flourish? Uh, and they look for a, a communal kind of response. So they literally are sort of picking up their congregation and moving it thousands of miles across yeah. an ocean. That's not us today, uh, is that, it? That is not us today, right? <laughs> no. So if... If you get a job offer, you know, for a, a better salary, you say, well, the Lord is leading me to go somewhere. <laughs> uh, and the idea that, that your, your bond with your church should impede that is probably not the first thing that we wrestle with. Yeah. And maybe the way they looked at it isn't perfect, but it certainly is uh, challenging to think about, isn't it? It at least requ- it, it challenges us to sort of reconsider what our understanding of the church is. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, they're not authoritative, but they are, they are our ancestors— part of Christ's body, and it's good for us to, to hear them out. Yeah. Do they have a high view of Scripture? Uh, I would say absolutely uh, so. One of the things that I particularly uh, appreciate uh, about the, the pilgrims is especially uh, their hesitance uh, to speak for God. So they understand that, that as Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, that the secret things belong to the Lord, those things which are revealed belong to us. Uh, and so they look to Scripture for principles, but then when it turns to um, uh, their present circumstances, they're very reticent about saying that this or that is clearly God's will. Hmm. One of the things that I think is so impressive is they actually don't say they know that it was the will of God that they migrate. Uh, what they actually say is, we thought through our situation we believe that our situation was dire. We believe that what we were proposing was lawful, that a state was not clearly prohibited by Scripture, but that's as far as they would go. So the pilgrim, one of the things I really appreciate, they have an incredibly high standard of God's sovereignty. Oh, yeah. One of the most common phrases in, in Bradford's history is, it pleased the Lord to, uh, or it was the Lord's will that. Uh, and so pretty much everything that happens, they're absolutely immediately saying this was God's uh, sovereign decree. But that's different from saying, and this is why he was doing this, or this was his larger purpose. 
Uh, and Bradford is very insistent that that is not a line that the Christian is to cross if the Scripture hasn't revealed something explicitly. Mm-hmm. Is there something else on your mind that, that uh, they have to teach us, or at least we need to consider seriously as we uh, follow Christ in our day? Well, just one other thing I would mention, and this does take us back to Thanksgiving itself. Um, they actually would not have called the celebration that that we recall in the fall of 1621, they would not have called that a Thanksgiving. Uh, they believed that uh, a Thanksgiving holiday was literally a holy day mm-hmm. that should not be regularly scheduled. It wouldn't be the fourth Thursday of <laughs> uh, November every year, but it was to be a response to an extraordinary uh, mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually paired that with something called a day of humiliation and fasting. So if you felt that there was some inordinate trial that you were experiencing, you would call for a holiday, a holy day of humiliation and fasting, while you prayed for insight, while you repented where that was called for, and so on. And then if you believed that you had experienced an extraordinary expression of God's blessing, you would call a holy day to acknowledge that and to express thanks for it. Boy, sounds very serious, doesn't it? It, it? it is, and it's very different. And I've always thought that um, while I love our Thanksgiving traditions, that as, as Christians we might want to be looking instead for ways to acknowledge, uh, as it happens, God's uh, special kind of blessing. When my kids were small, I wished I'd known this because I would have loved to, when something went well for our family, to declare a Thanksgiving holiday and say, we're stopping right now and we are going to celebrate the goodness of God, which is a different kind of message than scheduling it for yeah. you know a particular date on the calendar. Right. This is what we must do today because it's on the calendar. Right. Uh, the other word that uh, pops in my mind when I think about them and hear you talk about the pilgrims is sacrifice. Yes. What does that mean to you? Well, I mean, sacrifice with regard to the to the pilgrims, at least, is we we have to acknowledge that the the humanly speaking, the cost for their decision to to migrate to keep their congregation together was enormous. Uh, there are uh, eighteen married couples that uh, are on the Mayflower, uh, and one uh, at least one member uh, of fifteen of those marriages dies in the first winter. Mm. There are 26 families, and 22 of them experienced death. Uh, and, and so sacrifice is enormous. And, and the, the very act of celebrating God's provision in the fall with the harvest means so much more to me, I think, when we put that against the backdrop of all the yes. great human cost that they had experienced. Uh, it, to me, it, it underscores emphatically uh, the genuineness and sincerity of that. It's been so helpful to get a little history lesson from Dr. Tracy McKenzie today on who the pilgrims were and what they believed. It's an interesting American story that goes even beyond our present-day observance of Thanksgiving. These first-person conversations are made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media, and the result is that millions of people are reached with the gospel. A great way to learn more about FEBC is to listen to the podcast until all have heard. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. And to listen to today's interview again or to share it with others, please visit firstpersoninterview.com. You can stream on demand there or download the program with our free smartphone app. Happy Thanksgiving, and with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, 
I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person.